Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, as Joseph said, thank you guys so much for being here. I know uh, it took some work to get here, so we appreciate you doing that. Uh, I'm going to introduce our storyteller for the day. So excited to introduce her. Uh, she is uh, one of my daughter's best friends, and uh, she's just a remarkable young woman. And I can say a lot about her. And my wife and I, Susie, we were talking about what I should say to introduce her. And I, this is what I want to say. I met her when she was eight or nine years old. And when she comes up, you'll see uh, she's grown. Uh, but since she was a little thing, she would talk to us like she was a peer. Like, she'd come over and we say, hi, Bailey. And she'd say, oh, hi, Peter. How are you? And then she'd just stay there waiting for an answer. <laughs> Try to think of how many nine-year-olds do this in your life. And you know, when you were growing up or when you are growing up, you have that kid that your parents always compare you to? Yeah, that's happened uh, with her. And... Uh, so uh, super proud to introduce her. But this is a lesson for, your par for you parents out there. Teach your kids to ask grown-ups questions. That's kind of an amazing and rare thing. And uh, whenever, whenever I'm on the receiving end of that, my jaw just drops. It's amazing. Bailey, come on up and tell us your story. All right. Thank you, Peter, very much. So I'll start off by saying, oh, by the way, my name is Bailey McCam, as Peter said. Um, I'll start off by saying that I have moved exactly eight times in my life. And to some people, this, this is nothing. Some people have moved tons of times and drastic transitions like out of the country. My family and I, we never moved out of the country, but we moved around Washington a lot. Issaquah, Auburn, different places in Seattle numerous times, Spokane, and finally Mercer Island. Moving around was tough because of school and friends. I've moved schools about four times, which meant that I had to learn how to make friends. It became such an instinct, such a natural action buried in me that I was never afraid to just go up to someone and ask them about their life, which is kind of creepy, but. Um, I also had the discernment to tell if someone was hurting or struggling. Um, moving a lot, I can see now that God definitely did that for a reason. Each place that I've lived, God brought new people into my life that taught me more about Jesus and who I am. Um, meeting people that had a lot and people that had a little. And he did allow hard stuff to happen so that my family and I could grow in our faith with the Lord. And he protected us from evil as well. Um, we were called to be part of a church in Spokane for a little while. And it was imperfect, just like all churches, but it did not line up with what we believed in. Even so, we, um, we met people there that impacted our lives too and taught us important life lessons. Um, but God did warn my dad of this coming into the job that he got that God called him to. Um, God told him when we were to leave the church too. Um, and then um, he used me to work in different people's lives at different times in different circumstances in, Se in Seattle and Spokane. In Seattle, um, I had friends that were from different cultures. And I remember every single time I would see them, I would pray for them inside my head because I just wanted so bad for them to come to know Christ. Um, and I would ask God to show himself to them. 
And then in Spokane, I lived in a pretty poor neighborhood. And so <laughs> sometimes there would be cops circling our area because there's sometimes always travel in our neighborhood. Um, he put us in a few specific teenagers' lives um, to be a light in their lives and to show them real love from God. Um, there was an old lady across the street. Um, she was really lonely because she was alone, but she was very kind. And God put my mom in her life to tell her about this God that loved her as his daughter. Um, there was this time, the first year that I moved to Mercer Island, which was in fifth grade, um, there was this girl, and her mom was not in her life, and she didn't have a father either. Um, the look in her eyes when I saw her was just terribly lonely. It was terribly abandoned, confused. She was hurt. Sometimes she just stood alone at recess, and this just broke my heart. So I approached her, and I asked her how she was doing. She was very open with me about everything that was going on, and this was surprising for me, but um, it was definitely a compliment for me. Before um, she was separated from her mom altogether, her mom's boyfriend was abusive, and so they were forced to leave, and the only father image she ever had known was abuse. And I looked at my life, and I saw so many blessings. I saw parents that cared about me a lot, a God who loved me, and really I had two fathers because of my heavenly father, and I was wholeheartedly full and overflowing with joy and grace and the constant urge to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So every day when I saw this girl, I told her that God loved her so, so much and that anytime she was hurting to ask God for help. And a little while later, I gave her a Bible, and it was the best feeling giving this girl a Bible. It was like giving her the instructions to life, in a way, better than any words that I could utter to make her feel better about her loneliness. And more than just instructions, words stating the unending and absolute perfect love of Christ and how he died for her, not because she deserved it, not because I deserved it, but because she has a purpose. She is valuable. She is worth everything to him. After giving her the Bible, she told me she had been reading it, and I felt the power of God being moved in the atmosphere around me. Now, as some of you may know, my parents have a long history of ministry, church planting, and young life, which is a ministry to middle schoolers and high schoolers <clears throat> to tell them about Christ Jesus. It is a place that is an accepting environment. <clears throat> they can be themselves. They can laugh, cry, and share their life. And they're surrounded by leaders that care so much about them and adults that loved Jesus Christ so much because at one time he saved them too. Um, we moved to Mercer Island because my mom, Seidel, got the opportunity to be the area director here for Young Life. I absolutely adore the Mercer Island Young Life leaders. I am so thankful to have them in my life and in my friends' lives as well. They have become like family to me and some of them, I mean, may be in this room today, so shout out to you guys. Um, one of the highlights of getting to be the daughter of a Young Life staffer is assignment. An assignment is when my family and I get to go to a Young Life camp and serve there for a month. And it is the best because I get to watch teenagers that are my age come to know Christ, come to realize what they've been missing all along. And my fondest memory 
of last summer, I was sitting in the Bonanza, which is the club room at Washington Family Ranch in Oregon, and I just felt the tears rolling down my cheeks because all these 13, 14, and 15-year-olds, they were rising to put their paper heart on the cross, submitting their lives to the Lord. And I just watched them cry into their leader's shoulders, and I just saw their brokenness be turned to joy, and it was just so amazing. Um, so moving like this with only a few years at each home, I learned that my home is not a house and a state. It is with the Lord. His heart is our home, and with him we are not abandoned. It also came to light that this is only temporary, and a real eternal home awaits us. I think about my life, and if my family had never listened to God, I never would have been able to witness this beautiful miracle that Christ has done in the hearts of kids all around through Young Life, and the beautiful miracle he did in mine too. Today's scripture reading is from the book of John. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading John 1, verses 19 through 34 from the New American Standard Bible. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to him, who are you? So that we may give the answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of those sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After he comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed, for, sorry, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he may, might not be manifested to Israel, I come baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Sorry, guys, she's not up for adoption. So. <laughs> Again, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And we are in a series called the Son of God, and we're in the book of John, and we're really trying to understand in a fresh way uh, the person and purpose of God uh, in the person of Jesus. Today, I want to present a way that I often think about the gospel, 
in my head. I think I probably think about this way of thinking every day. And it's leaked out into my sermon several times here, but I want to take some more time with it and drill in a little deeper. And I hope it becomes a paradigm that reminds you of the gospel as it does for me. So we're going to talk about the laws of thermodynamics. And I want to understand it as sufficiently as we need to, to appreciate the parallels to the gospel, especially in the book of John, because John really uses uh, these concepts pretty explicitly, as you'll see. Okay, so, so the first law of thermodynamics states that energy cannot be created or destroyed in an isolated or closed system. And I think most of us know what that means. Let me unpack that just for a sec. It just means that you can't take away energy or create something new that's not already in the system. It just stays constant, the total amount of energy in a system. It just changes forms. So light can become heat, uh, but the same amount of energy uh, exists between those two things, heat or light. Right? So that's what the first law states. It all stays constant. The second law of thermodynamics states that entropy, which is the word for disorder or chaos, of any isolated system always increases. So the energy that's in the system is working to change order into disorder. So like, how many of you had to weed like nobody's business these days? That's chaos. It doesn't become more beautiful. It becomes less beautiful. Your home becomes less clean. Your plumbing gets worse. It's deteriorating, right? Everything tends towards chaos, including, I might add, relationships. If you don't input energy into those relationships, what happens? The relationship kind of starts drifting and degrading, and you're, sure, you're not sure uh, what's in the account. And when you need a favor, you're not sure if you, can, you have anything to cash in because entropy. Okay, you got this? Now, what is the third law, without looking this up, what is the third law of thermodynamics? Does anybody know? Say that again. Uh, no, that is incorrect. <laughs> that was Braden Bilby, by the way, everybody. Let's give him a hand. <laughs> if you don't know him, he's the tall guy. Okay, the third law states that everything comes to an absolute, on a quantum level, like as small as you can get on a, to a quantum level, everything comes to a standstill as we approach absolute zero, which is theoretical because we've never, ever, ever seen absolute zero. But in theory, if everything is brought to that temperature, there is no movement, no heat, no entropy, nothing. Now... These three laws are fascinating for me. We're going to get into it a little. I found this guy, which was so helpful. He's a British scientist named C.P. Snow. And he summarizes the three laws of thermodynamics this way. The first law is you cannot win. And he's saying that you can't get something for nothing because matter and energy are conserved. So if you think you're gaining something, you actually have to spend just as much to get it. Right? So you want money, you got to spend time. Right? If you want to invest in something, how do you know what to invest in? you got to do work to get insight. 
right? If you want to enjoy your relationship with your spouse when you're in your 60s, you got to put in 40 years of work before you get there, right? So there is no actually way to win. Yeah. <laughs> the second law is you can't even break even because you can't return to the same energy state because there's always an increase in disorder. Disorder is always increasing in your life. Like, we all know this as you age. Is order increasing or disorder increasing in your body? Yeah, it's disorder. Things don't work the way they are ordered to work. Right? So you can't win and you can't break even. There's always some loss of order uh, in the system, in you. Okay, and you can't get out of the game because you can't reach absolute zero. It's unattainable. And so you are forced to be part of the equation where entropy or disorder is increasing in your life. And if you feel like there's order in your life that's increasing, it's at the expense of something or someone or other people. And it's that at their expense that you're learning and growing and becoming better. Somebody is spending energy for you to improve. And you say, I don't like this game. I don't like this, like, you know, zero-sum game that we're a part of. Too bad. You're stuck. You can't get out. Now, just the laws of thermodynamics, when I think about it, makes me feel the need to be saved. And this is the message that I want to... Uh, get to today. Here's a poem. This is a Spanish poem that I personally translated. It's, uh, it's kind of a, it's mostly accurate. I didn't like some of the words, so I changed it. But it's, the idea captures <laughs> thermodynamics. Sighs are air and go to the air. Tears are water and go to the sea. Tell me, my friend, if you can, when love is gone, where does it go? And so this poem is speaking to the idea of conservation of energy, you know, size. It goes back into the system because it came from the system. And then this uh, last question, where does love go? Why does love go? And that's describing entropy, disorder. Love decreases in our natural and normal world because love is a kind of order, and that's decreasing as far as the laws of thermodynamics are Concern. Thermodynamics just means the study of energy. And so here's a depressing way to think about what life is. Life, it's a word that we find a lot in the book of John. Life is a constant engagement in battle against entropy. That's why life is difficult. That's why life is tiring. Things go wrong in life all the time. Things break. Things deteriorate and dissipate. There's loss. And loss hurts. There's pain. You know, and then you don't just keep it to yourself. You repeat the cycle. You pass it on. Because hurt people hurt people. Up to the third, fourth generations. It's really hard to get out of the cycle. And when you do, 
It's often at the expense of other people. Life can be sad that way. And if you stop engaging in this battle against entropy, where you slow down, then entropy begins to take over in your life. You know, you see that on a biological level. If you don't keep up the fight, I mean, it's just minutes before your body starts breaking down. I'm not going to gross you up, but just look up how long it takes for a body to decompose after death. It's right away, things just start happening. You start liquefying. I mean, it's gross. You think you're something? You ain't nothing. One flick, one moment, and your life has changed forever. You know, and a whole new world of entropy can enter into your life. This is a reality according to thermodynamics. And then here's what the Bible has to say about that. The, the laws of thermodynamics describe the hows of energy at work in our system, but it doesn't address, is unable to address the whys, like the author of life, or the purpose, or the intent of it. And the Bible says that God is actually the source, and I might add, an infinite source of all energy. He has no limits. He is completely outside the system. And he has a will. And God's will is what we understand as love. That God's will, his intent, is always love. Like we didn't invent love. It's not some nice thing we happen to be singing about. We thought, hey, that's a cool thing. Let's work towards that. No, no, no. God is the author of it. It's a description of his energy. Energy isn't just some force that's arbitrary or is uncaring or unseeing. It actually is intelligent. It's not just free-floating. It's not just coming at you or away from you, but it sees you and is accommodating you and is nurturing you. And, you know, on planet Earth, we are dependent on an energy source outside of our Earth system, and that's the sun third rock. We're the third rock from the sun. And if the sun were to stop and stop being the source of that outside energy, we won't last very long. I think we looked it up once, one time, right? It was like eight minutes or something. We're dead. Where's the sun get its source from? And you, you start following the dominoes all the way, and you find the, the origin without any other origin, the beginning without a beginning. He's the definition of reality, and we exist as sort of a sub-reality within God, the ultimate reality. Colossians 1.7 says this, He is before all things. In Him, all things hold together. Now, this is my question. If you are sitting here and you don't believe in God or some sort of higher being, where do we get energy from? Where does life come from, as John puts it, or light, as John puts it? Where does it come from? Because everything for it to perpetuate needs a source outside of its own system. In a closed system, 
there's only increasing entropy unless there is an input of energy from outside the system, and then life can flourish. But it's at the expense of that energy source. Where do you think life and truth and something beautiful like love, the concept or the acts of or the reality of, where does it come from? And Christianity teaches that it is God who is before all things, and it's in him that all things hold together. And this is what we mean when Christians talk about being saved. That somehow, without reaching absolute zero, that's death, we are somehow saved from having to participate in this equation that's just headed towards increasing entropy. We are saved from that game. We are pulled out of it, and we're connected to an infinite life source. And we can actually love, give, serve, because we're not the source. We're just conduits, vessels. We're not the author of love. We don't have to be loving people. God's love flows through us. God's patience, God's kindness, God's wisdom, wisdom from above comes down to us and flows out. You know, the Bible talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, and we think, that's kind of hokey. But then if you think about it, scientifically, it makes so much sense. Of course we have to be filled. If we weren't filled, where are we getting it? It would be limited. And if it's not limited, then we're getting it from somebody else. So somebody's dying so that we can live? I don't want that. And this is the Christian gospel, that we are saved from this game of having to eat other people to live ourselves. We don't have to kill to be alive. We're not subject to death, quote-unquote, and darkness. These are words in the book of John. We're out of the game. The alternative, as far as I can think it through, is this death spiral. I enjoy the good life because my wife is slaving away. I don't want that. I want out of that game, but how? This is salvation. A book that I read a number of years ago, it's called The Omnivore's Dilemma. And it's a book that talks about food here in America. It starts out with how everything, everything is laced with corn. You know, we're all just always just eating corn all the time. Even the grocery stores we shop in, the drywall, corn. <laughs> the fuel that delivers the food, corn. Ingredients in the food, corn. Everything is corn. It sort of starts out like that. And then the book ends with, the author trying to make one single meal out of food that he hunts naturally or forages. It took him four weeks because he had to make his own salt for one meal. He went into the woods of California with a bow and arrow. He shot and killed a wild boar. And then he was preparing this meal. He invited some close friends and others who had helped him with his uh, research. They were sitting at this table, and there was this pig in front of them. And you know what happened? They're not Christians. They weren't trying to pray and thank God for the meal. All of them spontaneously broke out in tears and started weeping before this pig. It became a holy moment 
because he was so thankful that this pig gave its life for their life. And he said he felt this absolute obligation to eat every single part of the pig just so it can honor the life that it gave. Four weeks to prepare that one meal. And he said he cheated while he was cooking the meal that day. He got so hungry he ordered sushi. So where does life come from? From where, from whom do you get life or healing or redemption? And if you're not a believer in God, who do you think? Let's see what God does with entropy. First, I am not. And this, this is verses 19 to 23. And this is John saying, I am not the Lord. I am, in other words, to use our metaphor today, I am not the source. I have no life in myself. I am nothing. I am just like you. I'm part of the game. I'm part of the equation. And if I want to live, I have to consume you. And if you want to live, you have to consume me. We need each other in that way, but all of us together are just heading towards death, entropy. I am spiraling down with you. I can't get even, and I can't get out. What I do is I am working to make straight the way of the Lord, the actual Lord, the authority or the author, the source. That's my job but I am not the source. So this, there's a lesson here somewhere. Whoever you are, whatever you do, whatever position of authority you believe you hold, you're not the source. You're a conduit. You're a steward. You exist for the well-being of others, and the only way you can help them do well is if you understand yourself as a vessel. Otherwise, you just run out. Try to love people on your own strength. Just try to be love. Can't do it, not for long. You can have one, like, maybe good moment because lots of good things have happened to you. You're in a good mood or something. But that's it. And then he goes on to say, verse 24 to 28, uh, the Pharisees then say, if you're not the Lord... If you're not the source, if you're not the light, then why are you promising new life in your baptism? And then John says, my baptism actually is just symbolic. My baptism in and of itself has no value. It has no meaning. But it points to one who is going to baptize in the only meaningful way. What is baptism? Waters represented death. And so when you are submerged, immersed in the water, it's symbolizing your death. And then when you are lifted up out of the water, it's symbolizing new life. But what's happening? Well, on a thermodynamics level, what's happening is you are dying to the game. You're dying to the old system you are a part of in the same way. You're saying, it's not I who live anymore. I am dead. I'm at absolute zero with regard to this game that we are all caught up in. 
I no longer have to eat you to live. I have another source, and it's the Holy Spirit. It's Christ in me, and he fills me, and then I have an abundant, infinite amount of love and energy to give to you rather than take from you. The word minister in the Greek, it's just a simple word. It means to give. We're supposed to give, not to get. How can we be givers unless we are baptized in the Holy Spirit? This is what John is saying. I baptize with water, but there's one coming. He's going to baptize with fire. That's energy. And then here is Jesus, verse 29 to 34. I'm actually going to read this again. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me pause right there. I thought energy couldn't be created or destroyed. Look what it says. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold which means look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. I will remember no more. Now, just meditating on this truth in light of you know, the laws of thermodynamics, it really increases my faith to think about this, that there is an infinity out there who is the only one able to, because of his infinite nature, absorb sin into himself, and it's gone. He takes it away. This is so important because I think about my life. You guys, I make so many mistakes all day. I was having a good day writing my sermon on Thursday, and then I got into like the most jerk mood. Just, I got triggered, ended up apologizing a thousand times to Julie. Who wants to do that? (laughs) You know, because I have to admit to her, she's right again. I still feel weird, you know, just so many cringe moments in my life. I had another great day on Friday, just Day of meetings, really great meetings. My last meeting was talking with this guy who used to be a pastor, but he's part of a church plant in North Carolina, and he's talked the pastor into becoming a covenant church planter, and so we were assessing him together. I thought, man, this this is a really fun consultation. What a beautiful day. And on my way home from that meeting, I got into a car accident. It was 100% my fault. I was stuck in South Lake Union, thanks, Amazon. And I made an illegal left turn because everybody was, you know, being Seattleite drivers. And the New York came out. I made this illegal turn, and I hit a car. Awful. I mean, it was a sort of fender bender. But now there's a mess. Entropy is beginning to happen. And it doesn't just go away, does it? It can't just be taken away. I still feel bad about it. I've tracked her down, and I've been begging to allow her to pay her something personal. Like, I want to just, like, pay for her dinner or something. She's visiting from Idaho. You guys, I feel awful that I did this to an actual nice person. 
but I can't remove the stain from my conscience, from my emotion, emotional, you know, uh, psyche. It's just there. I just feel icky about it. You know, pain begets pain, and hurt people hurt people. When negativity or some kind of interruption is introduced to a group, you know, what happens to it? How is it taken away? How is it ever gone? You sort of wait years and years and years, and you think maybe it's gone now, and maybe we're fine. And then you, you know, interacting, and you realize, oh, it's still there. Where does it go? Sighs are air and go to the air. Tears are water and go to the sea. When love is gone, where can it go? Where does pain go? Where does brokenness go? Where do these accidents go? What happens to them? This is the question. I really value, you know, I'm sort of OCD, and I really value cleanliness, above godliness, actually. Um, And... The thing that trips me up is how nothing ever really gets clean. It's just a transfer of dirt. (laughs) I took my microfiber rag, and I cleaned the windshield of my car yesterday. It was filthy. And then all that dirt was off my window. Where was it? On my rag. And then what did I have to do with the rag? I had to wash it. I had to use more water, more energy and resources. I had to exert, you know, just make effort to try to clean my rag. I have to set it out to dry, and after a couple of uses, that's going to be gone. I have to throw it out. I have to buy new ones, and to buy new ones, I have to work. You know, it's just the cycle keeps going. Dirt never goes away. It's out in the ocean right now. But here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't have to just transfer it to a rag. Look what Isaiah says. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Don't you love that? We are righteous. Our righteous acts have been cleaned up by the rags. Now the rags are dirty. Now what do you do with the rag? You know? So all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. We just become part of the motion of entropy. And yet God is unlimited. He is infinite, and he is the only one who can absorb into his own infinity the sin of the world. And as God works his redemptive plan here on earth, entropy on earth is actually decreasing. He's beginning to redeem. He doesn't have to do everything good or right. He uses all things for the good because he has redemptive power that can overcome death. Life is actually going to win with God. How did he do it? 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. I want this, as we close in the next slide here, to be a challenge for your mind. 
Just reason with yourself. If you don't trust in God, if you don't look to God who has the ability to take sin away, if you don't believe in God, where does that sin go? And I know you know you're not perfect. We don't even have to call it sin. Your mistakes, your oops, your I didn't mean to, I thought I was going to, all those intentions gone wrong. What do you do with it? Where does it go? If you believe in science, tell me, according to the laws of thermodynamics, where does it go? It doesn't just disappear. It can't go away. To whom do you turn and pray for the forgiveness of your sin? And I think the answer is Christ, the Lamb of God. So here we have our closing verses. And we, I, close this, I close with this as our prayer. Ephesians chapter 1, 7 to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That's his infinity. That he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Amen.